The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So this morning we are returning to our study in Philippians after taking a a four-week pause, and that that may seem peculiar, especially to those maybe visiting or if you've been um, just gone for a variety of providential circumstances with work, travel, sickness, or otherwise. Like, Why would you take an extended pause in the midst of a study that's already... Um, seems like it's covered over a, a long period of time itself. Well, we took an, a, a four-week pause to unpack Psalm 51 together, a time that I'd requested for the purposes of invigorating your worship. I think that's one of, the, one of the most natural places to go if you want to promote or provoke someone to worship. I think the Psalms are really, really just a good place to, to direct our attention. Also exhorting those who are not in Christ to examine their hearts. I, I'm mindful that uh, while... The nature of a worship service is that we're populated and filled with those who are in Christ, those who declare to be in Christ. I'm also mindful that we have families and that a lot of our younger ones and a lot of the children may or may not have come to salvific faith. Maybe they're exposed to it, and that's the nature of most of our testimonies is that we were familiar and we were, in God's kindness, raised in a truth-rich context. But to provoke and to call, would you consider, in light of what the scriptures say to, to examine your hearts. And so we examine Psalm 51 in that regard. And then also to help us to help us further equip you for the work of ministry in the area of evangelism. So one of the charges of a pastor teacher and those who are leading the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is this is not the nature of exclusive ministry. It's not, oh, well, if you're not on a, a bulletin, a PowerPoint, or an official service, then you're not doing ministry. That's that's not the nature of New Testament ministry. The New Testament ministry is you go out and do. This is part of ministry, but it's part of it is equipping you, provoking you to worship, and directing us to fellowship, strengthening you and growing in grace, but also preparing you for your participation in ministry. And so I was mindful that how can we help one another specifically in the area of evangelism? And so I chose to use Psalm 51 to that end as well. And then this last week in prayer meeting, I provided really just an overly simplistic graphic, and I, I feel like I could get away with that because prayer meeting is a little bit more casual and much more forgiving audience, but uh, nevertheless, I thought that's still useful, and so I'll introduce my overly simplistic graphic to you in just a moment. And it's a way, a very simple way, to unpack this beloved psalm primarily with a view to securing gospel opportunities. And so, again, introduced this Wednesday night, um, I'm not a not ashamed to use just direct clip art. I think it's stickmen or better than my stickmen, but it helps. It helps with our aim. And as you can see, the graphic is a running man, a rainbow, and some folks rejoicing. Not to be confused with dancing, they're just rejoicing. Um, and accompanying these images are the following statements running to the refuge of God's mercy and rejoicing in God. And again, while that's really simple, it captures all three of my objectives for our primary time in Psalm, in Psalm 51. It's reminding you that Psalm 51 progresses from a theology of sin to a theology of, of worship. It's exhorting those not in Christ to run from their sin and to find refuge in the safest place possible, namely God's mercy, that to this end, that you also might rejoice in a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness and truth. And so, while it's quite simple, it gives you a tool to walk through a beloved psalm and show others the nature and character of God, the weight of sin, a precious demonstration of mercy prevailing, and the end to which such matters bring us, namely worship. Or, 
as Paul might express it, to rejoicing, to rejoicing in the Lord, just as he did when opening this next portion of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, the first sentence that he starts this new section, a very clear transition, he states, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You know, there's perhaps no more consistent command, no more consistent command in all the scriptures or actions expressed throughout the history of God's people than that of rejoicing or being commanded to rejoice or of calling upon others to rejoice themselves. That's the nature of what we are. We're worshipers. You will worship something. You, you are bent toward that, but more than that, you are created for that. You will worship someone, something, somewhere, somehow. That's why the Old Testament, why, why are they constantly struggling with idolatry? They were directing their worship towards something less. So we're worshipers, and so the testimony of the Scriptures are constantly reminding us that. They're commanding us, worship, worship your Creator, worship the Lord, worship the God of glory, worship your Redeemer. It's calling upon others to rejoice. It's, it's joining and rejoicing. And so that's the nature of what redeemed people do. And such commands reach across an unbelievable plane of persons and experiences and difficulties and triumphs. In every imaginable context, there are testimonies of rejoicing, of praising God, and or calling upon oneself or others to do just that throughout a range of circumstances and experiences. Just as we also noted in Psalm 51, where you have a, a most terrible introduction. And where does it go? It directs us to worship. Even you think about David's repentance and his immediate restoration. He's grieving over his child that's going to die, and then the child dies. And what does he do? He gets up, cleanses himself, prepares himself, and worships. That's the nature of who he was. He was a worshiper. And all throughout, again, the testimony of the Scriptures, you pick a book, you will find worshipers. You, you scan the Scriptures, you will find worshipers in a whole range of contexts. And so while in that study, in Psalm 51, we were reminded time and again that the Psalms, we cited, referenced, drew from many psalms during that time. The psalms, perhaps like no other book, exude these truths that God's people are worshipers. They rejoice, and they rejoice in the full sweep of life's experiences. And you can communicate that kind of range in a book as, as large as the psalms, because when you have 150 psalms, you have things like Psalm 121, you have psalms like 51, and 119, and 19, and 1, and 3, you can just... Pick any number of them. You're going to have this incredible range of experiences, authors, historical context, dynamics, approaches. And so the, the, a large book like that, especially aimed as it was, you, you're going to have that rich range. A book compiled, again, with a clear view to worship. But being students of Paul's letter to the Philippians, you also know that matters of worship can permeate even short books as well expressing themselves most plainly here by way of joy and rejoicing. It's not just, oh, that's an interesting, that's, that's, that's worship language. That's the language of what we do. It's, it's worship. So even in the small book, four chapters, it's rich with be joyful, embrace joy. I have joy. I rejoice. You rejoice. Again, terms that are not just expressing a happy disposition, but one that is overflowing in worship. A matter that really comes at no surprise as it was worship in the form of prayer and the singing of hymns that proved to be a life-changing moment for one of the charter families of the, the church in Philippi. You remember Paul and Silas worshiping late in the hours or actually it's almost midnight or so. Changed the Philippian jailer's life. Changed this whole family's life. Again, having been unjustly abused and imprisoned, 
Paul and Silas worshipped within the inner confines of the Philippian jailhouse in the late hours of the night at 1625. And that wasn't because they enjoyed their abuse. Like, I can't believe it. We're Roman citizens, and they still beat us without trial. Isn't that magnificent? No, it was horrible. It was unjust. It was wicked. And yet, what do they do? They, they direct their attention and affections toward worship. Because that's who Paul is. That's who, Paul, that's who Silas was. And so he goes on to call upon this dear church to engage in time and or engage in time and again throughout this letter toward worship, toward joy, toward rejoicing. Because he was a man of great joy and great rejoicing, as that all who are circumcised of heart ought to be. Matters that we're going to return to in just a moment. But first, let's establish our passage together. And as we do, I want you to think about a think about it as a completion of something. So we're going to be in three, one through seven for I don't, a week or two, maybe three, I don't know yet. But nevertheless, I want you to think about that section in a certain way. I want you to think about it, it's completing something. It's, it's finishing something we've already begun. It's something very important to what we've already actually worked through, namely the heart of the letter. The heart of the letter, which came in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Paul drilled down on his primary aim within this letter, namely that we would have a humble and yet joyful others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord. That's what he was aiming at in this book, and the heart of the letter is the most clear and precise articulation of that. And perhaps a key verse within that passage came right in the middle of it, where Paul exhorted us in chapter 2, verse 5, quote, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he kind of built up to that, and then he builds it out. And so it's a very important verse that helps us think about what's happening there in the heart of the letter. It's that you are to have the same pattern of thinking as Christ did, humble, others-oriented, joyful. And from there, he unpacked the humility and the exaltation of Christ, leaving a, a notable matter of consequence left unstated. It was implicitly present, but unstated, namely the resurrection of Christ. And such is why I would argue that he is now returning to complete the heart of this letter by way of giving us the crucial ingredient to the success of what he was driving us to, namely having a humble and yet joyful others-oriented others unity of mind in the Lord, an aim that's accomplished. So how do we do it? He's given us the, the preeminent example. He's, he's made it explicitly clear what we are to do. So how do we do it? Well, he's going to unpack that here in chapter 3. A name that, again, is accomplished by those who are driven to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And while I cannot necessarily pound the pulpit, I don't know that anybody does that anymore. I, there was a time, I guess, when that's why you have good, robust pulpits and not just music stands. They pound the pulpits and emphatically state, this is how it is. I'm not going to do that, but I do have a deduction here. I do have a a, a, a fruit of wrestling with Philippians I have for you. So I'm not going to pound the pulpit while declaring some thundering authority on such matters, but I do think it's at least worthy of considering, and that's this, that at the heart of the letter, Paul brought us to the humility and subsequent exaltation of Christ. You have the incarnation, the humility of Christ, as low as it got, humbled to the point of death, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God highly exalted him. And so you have yielding to his, um, you have the, the, excuse me, the, the bringing low in his humility and his death, and then the subsequent exaltation of Christ. And again, what's between there? Well, the implicit 
understanding what we do know to be true from the larger testament of the scriptures was the resurrection. And now, when yielding to us his single great passion, Paul's great passion, you want to understand Paul, you want to peel him back. What does it mean when you said in chapter 1, for me to live as Christ and die as gain? He's going to say, well, let me give you a, a, an even more precise clue as to what this means. So he's going to yield to us his single great passion. He frames it with the language of the power of Christ's resurrection. And in such, perhaps answering the question of why such a sudden shift of attention to the grotesque offense of the Judaizers here at the beginning of chapter 3, and then answering their folly with one of the most intimate articulations of self-evaluation we have of Paul, where he lays out his unparalleled credentials and then effectively puts a match to them because they're just a pile of rubbish in view of knowing Christ, and specifically knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. So that's how I hope you'll come to our passage. I hope you'll see it as a completion of the heart of the letter. The heart of the letter drove us to the central aim, and it brought us there by the humility and exaltation of Christ. Implicitly was the resurrection, and now, how do I do it? I'll tell you how you do it, with a view to the resurrection, with a longing to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So I would argue it's an extension of the heart of the letter and it's going to direct us as to how we execute this high call, this high charge that we've been given. So that being said, let's look at our passage together. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, gonna, I said through verse 7, I meant actually through verse 11. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. Paul, re, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have confidence, I, might, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I've already primed you for a view to this opening command. And that is a command. It's not just a, isn't this a nice way to make a transition? Uh, how are you doing? Rejoice in the Lord. No, it's a command. It's a very clear command. It's one we're familiar with. And I've primed you for it. One that we're familiar with in this letter. Namely, again, a call to rejoice. But it comes in what may appear to be a peculiar transition point in the letter. As Paul opens the sentence with, finally, before going to write, 40 plus more verses. Now, I believe most of us are familiar with uh, false starts. 
Um, you don't even have to be um, uh, somebody who gives a lot of attention to sports or athletics to just be familiar with at least the concept, um, namely the, the penalizing or even disqualifying offense when a competitor reacts or moves prematurely, when they jump the gun. And if you're familiar with jump the gun, well, we're attending track meets now, and they have the little starter pistol. And if you, if you go before that pistol, you, you've, you've jumped the gun. You, you've moved prematurely when the runner crosses the starting line before the starting pistol is fired. But what about, what's a false finish? Uh, maybe feigning as though you were finished only to spring back to life or continue in your progress. Perhaps not unlike my occasionally slipping in the assurance that we're working toward a conclusion. Um, that's true. I never said we've come to a conclusion. We're getting there. I just want to help you kind of stay with me a little bit longer. So maybe that's what he's getting at. Or might Paul have been wrapping matters up only to be interrupted by news of a threat, and so he decided to kick off a series of warnings that go on to develop an invaluable portion of this letter. Well, those are a pursue, uh, possibilities. Not likely, though. I, I don't think that either of these options are the, the reason for the language here. Rather, it's likely a matter of appreciating the range of how this term for finally can be used, namely as a point of transition to signal a conclusion of what's just been worked through and the introducing of another matter. So it appears that Paul is taking us from the, the plans for Timothy and then later himself to return to their company and then his unpacking of Epaphroditus' unique testimony of service and early return. And now he's transitioning to other matters of no small consequence for the Philippians' care and the letter's larger aim. A transition that's framed once more with a call to rejoice. And in this, he's refreshing our attention to an important thematic element of this book. Again, one that establishes the letter's tone. Now, what you'll observe here is that both his testimony and calls to rejoice, or calls to joy and rejoicing, have and will hereafter continue to be expressed in a range of circumstances, demonstrating that it's not a matter of, of common happiness that he's speaking to, but a true element of the Spirit's work in the believer's life. What he's calling to, what he's commanding here, is something you can do. Well, I'm familiar with my circumstances. Paul's not. Doesn't matter. He's saying that you are a spirit-empowered believer. He's, remember, how did he start the book off? To the saints in Philippi, to those who are holy and set apart. So you can heed these commands. You, really, you have to. It's a call to rejoice. And again, we've already seen him exemplifying that in a range of circumstances himself. So Philippians 1.18 we observe that the advancement of the gospel produced joy for Paul. And you might think, well, that's a rather reasonable conclusion for a gospel minister. Of course he's going to be joyful when the gospel's advancing, and that's true. But as you recall, there was more to this context in which he chose joy as it was joy expressed even when the gospel was being advanced by bad actors who wished him personal difficulties. Remember, they were preaching Christ with an effort to undermine or undercut or cause him harm or distress. But Paul locked in, but they're preaching Christ. And so in that, he rejoiced. Now, to be clear, this joy was also coupled with a confidence in the Lord's deliverance in no small part by means of the prayers of the believers and the provision of the Spirit. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. 
Next, we see Paul expressing joy and the complete spending of himself in his shared service with the Philippians. He's completing their own sacrifice. And he, he says, when I say he's spending himself, he's using the picture of a drink offering, one that's not going to be returned. It's utterly spent. It's gone. And with this, he rejoices and shares his joy with them and in turn expected them to also rejoice and to share their joy with him. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then most recently, we observed how out of his great affection for the Philippians, Paul's own joy was bound up in their welfare, thereby invigorating his choice to sacrificially send Epaphroditus back to them for their benefit and his joy. Remember, the nature of his affection for them was that he had joy in them doing well. He had joy in their success and their progress in faith and their satisfaction. So he states, therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned. So he's again aiming for their joy as well. So we've observed that Paul found and called upon others to share in his joy in matters of the advancement of the gospel, the Lord's deliverance, and the giving of oneself in service, and through sacrificially caring for one another. And now, Paul calls upon the Philippians to again rejoice, this time in the work of esteeming truth over its assailants. That's the context when she's saying rejoice. Rejoice in that we're going to esteem truth over the assailants, over those who would attempt to compromise the integrity of the gospel, those who would demand an improvement or a supplemental completion of the gospel, which cannot be improved upon and is itself fully complete. Therefore, any such efforts to improve or more fully complete the gospel only serve to demonstrate a lack of knowing and benefiting from the Lord's salvation while also serving as saboteurs um, as to those who would would and have submitted to the pure simplicity of justification by faith in Christ alone. And so you can think about this if you, um, I don't know how often you frequent maybe a, the, the art museums or, or maybe if you um, are traveling with the, the Francis to France um, uh, later this year, you, you talk them into taking the Louvre or whatnot, and you can go see the great works of art. And you come in there with your, um, your little Crayola colors there, and you're just going to improve on it a little bit, right? What would you do? You've compromised it. You've tainted it. You've distorted it. You think you can add or dis- you can contribute or make beautiful the gospel? That's an assault in the gospel. If you're going to do that with art and there's going to be consequences, how much more God's glorious truth? Now, with this, with this a matter of further consideration here is that joy was commanded Again, on the cusp of a firm caution. A caution against those who are distorting and assaulting the gospel. A firm caution and even a biting rebuke of those who have done tremendous harm in the shadow of Paul's gospel ministry. I don't think, I don't, I don't have any reason to be persuaded immediately here that they're present and stirring things up. But Paul is a seasoned gospel minister, and in the shadow of his ministry have been these Judaizers following and disrupting and challenging and undermining. So perhaps the call, or even more precisely the command to rejoice, ought also to be viewed with it as, a, as an insulator for truth and an insulator for a steady walk, as one will not soon undermine 
that which in their heart is presently rooting its joy. So if, you're, if you look at a piece of art and you think, oh, that's beautiful, you're not going to quick to undermine it, are you? And if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're not going to be quick to undermine the integrity and the beauty of the gospel. So we're rooting our joy in such matters, namely in the Lord and the humble and exalted work of Christ, which is both complete and wholly sufficient. So once more, Paul's again commanding that which naturally accompanies the life and experience of the redeemed to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord who is the source and sphere of our joy. A joy that knows the expectation of working out when salvation while recognizing that it is Christ who will complete his work in us. And this not because we've capitulated to a works system that would seek to find cover under the law to include cover under a foundational sign of God's covenant with Abraham. Now, we've alluded to Paul's warning while establishing his call to rejoice, and as, and as we give our attention to it more directly, we can see the gentleness of his tone toward the believers. There's really uh, two tones here. There's a gentleness toward those he's writing to, and then the tone will quickly change when speaking of the offending Judaizers. Again, I don't think they're present. I doubt they're reading this letter, but boy, if they picked this up, they would have felt barb and jab and punch those who sought to impute burdens on the purity of the gospel. So again, note the pastoral gentleness with which he speaks to this matter on behalf of the believers. He states, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. You know, sometimes um, I know y'all are being very gracious and kind. You say, ah, sorry to bother you. It's not a bother. If you're, if you're talking to me about the things of the Lord, the scriptures, prayer, it's not a, it's not a bother, not a bother. But there's a, there's a deferring and a graciousness toward one another, and Paul is picking up on like language, and he's saying it's, it's no burden. And it's, it's, it's safeguarding to you. It's protecting you. It was no burden to speak to that which was for their preservational good. There were substantial threats that had done harm to many others, including even mature believers. It's a dangerous thing to think, well, that doesn't impact me anymore. It will. And part of the responsibilities of leadership are not just declaring that which is right and true, but also providing safeguards from errors and that which will pull God's people away from the purity of the gospel. But... What might he have been referring to when he spoke of prior writing? So he says, uh, it's no burden. It's no trouble. It's, it's okay. It's, it's part of my serving you and expressing affection and love for you and care for you to write these things again. Well, again, we, this isn't second Philippians. So several have argued, well, maybe, maybe it's, um, he's speaking with a view back to the end of chapter 1 where he wrote maybe a little bit more generically, more broadly, Chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's, that's what's at stake here, so that makes sense. So that what, what, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but is salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And I think, okay, that, that's a reasonable deduction that maybe that's what he's saying, to write these things again, even within this uh, more immediate letter and context. 
but I'm also content with not knowing for certain. Maybe there was other correspondence. That, that's okay. Not everything he wrote was under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Not everything he wrote was going to be preserved. So we really don't know, and that's okay. We know that he has cared for them, and that part of his caring for them is providing safeguards, which he is reintroducing again here. So what is clear is that the seasoned gospel laborer has observed time and again the threat and the destruction of those who would impose on others more than the gospel demands, and this to their destruction. And so he blitzes them with three concise repetitions of warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. It's uh, rather intense, and as I've stated before, even biting warnings that would serve as clear rebukes to the ears of his adversaries. And while we are effectively only introducing these matters this morning, I want to give you a, a, quick, a quick peek ahead as to why the nature of these warnings bef um, before um, looking at them more closely. So if we take a peek ahead to the, chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 4, you'll see the issue at hand is really one of confidence, namely the source of one's confidence. Confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ? That's really what it's going to come down to, to where is your confidence finding its source and its rest in the flesh, in your works, in your efforts, in your abilities, and your keeping the law, or is it going to be in Christ? And these persons' confidence, these Judaizers, their confidence was in the flesh and what they could do and their exercising of expectations established in the law. And this, this didn't just frustrate Paul, it disgusted him. Not because he could not meet or exceed their own efforts, but because this was a condemning confidence. This is the, the height of arrogance, as it were. And so he laid out this three-peat command. Beware, beware, beware. And he not only repeats concise statements of warning, he also employs some alliteration and, and turns titles and identities on their head, making the warnings sharply memorable to his readers. So the first layer of alliteration came with each of the terms or titles beginning with a chi in the Greek. And so you can see here the, the beware kunos, beware kakus uh, ergatos, beware katatomi. Boy, I probably should have practiced more. But you can see it, right? Beware starts with a, looks like a K. It's okay. It's a chi. And then beware, same letter, beware, same letter. So you're starting to see like these sharp, short warnings. Beware, same letter. Beware, same letter. Beware, same letter. It's just getting their attention and stirring them up and, and kind of showing a, a measure of uh, literary skill, but also driving it home. And this is, and this one last, excuse me, and there's one last use of alliteration that we're going we're gonna to return to in a minute because it even punches harder, as it were. But first, we're going to consider these terms or titles that he employed here, beginning with dogs. Beware the dogs. Now, I'm mindful of our historical cultural context. And in our contemporary culture, there's a significant affinity toward these domesticated creatures. Um, I think most of you, probably, again, not sure for everybody, but it seems like just in conversation, most of you have dogs, have had dogs, or are even aspiring to get a dog. There's this range of relationship with these animals. They're companions. It's, it's a, okay, that's a reasonable grounds for it. They're companions. They're, they're tools of service in a range of ways, from gentle and compassionate service to very aggressive, protective service. And they're also um, 
really, for Noah, the object of his work. Because people have dogs, he has work. And so there's a range of relationships. But, but few of us are especially enthusiastic about a stray dog. Not just a dog that's lost. Well, there's a measure of sympathy with that. You see a collar on, it's a little hesitant, or it might be kind of zigzagging toward the road and you're concerned about it. That's not the issue. This, the stray dog. Now, again, not just a dog that's lost, but one that does not possess the advantages of being properly domesticated. They roam about. They, they rummage through trash, perhaps even harass or chase off other animals and even occasionally people. And that's the common experience of dogs in many other cultures. Uh, if you've traveled in a variety of places, I, I know I've, I remember specifically in Ecuador, just walking up and down the roads up in the mountains there, and, and the dogs there weren't like, oh, let me come pet you. No, they were just scavengers. They're little... Um, nasty little riffraff animals that, that were just as eager to harass you as you might be to pet them. So little four-legged scavengers, nuisance animals that often roam in packs, provoke frustration if not trouble. And the idea is that of being unclean and even dangerous. And this experience with dogs is expressed throughout the scriptures. Uh, if you just look at how dog is used or dogs are used throughout the scriptures, it's not, you probably like, and we domesticated these things and they just didn't like them as much. It's just the point of relation they had in terms of a cultural standpoint. And so Jews would, in really a derogatory fashion, refer to Gentiles as dogs. The dogs. They're filthy. They're unkempt varmints. They're, they're not holy people. They're, they're, they're uncivilized. And especially those who were uh, more submissive to the law and to their burdens that they've placed in addition to what the law required or addition to what the gospel required, they especially would be quick to look at somebody and be like, oh, the dogs. You're like the dogs. And here Paul turns that insult in its head, applying this description of caution and rebuke toward those who prided themselves on being superior, not only to Gentiles, but the common Jew as well. They were not honorable persons. They were dogs that would creep up on unsuspecting prey to snatch away what they could and then scurry off to devour it in the shadows. He's saying that those who would say, oh, the dog's out there. He said, no, actually, beware of the dogs. You understand who the dogs are? That, that's them. And you can feel that bite, and you can feel the Philippians. Ooh, he just called them dogs. Yeah, he did, because that, that's a fitting description. Next, Paul states, beware the evildoers or evil workers. Again, he turns matters in their heads as the offending party here, and again, the Judaizers, those who spent themselves working and laboring and keeping the law, they worked hard. We're not going to say that they were lazy in their efforts. They're working very diligently. If anybody was a worker, they were hard at work at it. But they weren't gospel workers. They weren't faithful workers. They weren't godly workers. Paul calls them evil workers. They were indeed doers and workers, but they were evil in their efforts and evil in their returns. This was not a matter of, of, of soft division. Like, you know, Paul's parted company with different people over time, and, and some of us, you, you walk in this, uh, this life long enough, or even in service to the church, sometimes there's, there's differences among colleagues and friends. There can be soft differences, but this wasn't a soft difference. This wasn't a soft separation. He's calling them villainous laborers. They're working hard to undermine God's truth and the beauty and the glory thereof. And finally, and most pointedly, beware the mutilation. Beware of those who cut themselves. Beware of those who disfigure themselves. 
This was a noun whose verb form was used in the Septuagint. It's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in such, you'll see again the, the, the verb form of this referencing unlawful cuttings of the flesh in the Old Testament, the grotesque conduct of pagans. It was a term to most, uh, to most pointedly jab, I would argue, the offending party whose central point of pride and foundational concern of imposition on others was that of circumcision. And it was, a view, it was with this in view that we can appreciate now the double alliteration that Paul employed here as the term, like the others, began with a chi, or that K-looking letter, K-looking sound, but it also shared the same root as the term for circumcision. And so you have that same root for mutilation, same root for circumcision, and he's playing with words. He's, he's letting you hear and a little bit of a misdirect. Not beware the circumcision, beware the mutilators. Those who, they, they're not just bad circumcision, they're the, the antithesis to the beauty and the sign and the dignity that accompanied circumcision. So it was a play on words not to have been lost on his readers and certainly not on his enemies. So this was both a sharp warning and biting provocation, but not just for the sport of it. I, I think some people challenge those who disagree with them as though they just they like that little shot of adrenaline or they're spoiling for a fight. Paul had no interest in that. He had other things to do. Rather, he was doing this because it merited the weight of caution. It's no worry. It's no hardship to me. It's for your good. And so he punches, punches, punches. And he does this because the integrity of the gospel was in the balance as Judaizers went about on the heels of the advancement of the gospel and demanded that Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses. Or if you didn't, you weren't genuinely redeemed. And so then he goes on to drive the matter home, not for the offending party, but for the believing community, when he states quite plainly who it was that has the right to identify themselves with the circumcision. He states, for we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We, Jews and Gentiles in Christ, are the circumcision. An identity that was expressed by way of three distinguishing elements here. We worship in the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, each of those elements deserve a measure of attention, and the third serves as the, the launching point. So first, for Paul's personal resume that he's going to speak to in just a little bit in the next section, which undoubtedly dwarfs his critics. They have so much pride, and Paul potentially could have more pride, and he says, you know what, that's just, let's be honest, guys, it's just a bunch of garbage. And secondly, for the valuation of that which is true, true gain which, and which is true loss. And so it's going to serve as the catalyst for the, that which dwarfs his critics and also for evaluation of that which is true gain and true loss. Again, what he'll go on to unpack in the subsequent verses, demonstrating the incomparable value of knowing Christ. Matters that we'll give attention to next week. But I want to first give you, with the remainder of our time, as we you know, work toward a conclusion um, this morning, to speak to this statement more broadly. Name of the statement of identity he says here that we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. That's a, that's a profound statement, a, a magnificent identity. 
but it is not one to be confused with the language of we are the true Israel or we are the new Israel or we are God's Israel. Language that I saw peppered throughout the majority of those who I engaged in my study. We are not Israel. We are the church. And that distinction matters. And I don't want something precious here to be a point of confusion for you. And so I hope even while giving the matter a high-level treatment, you'll have both a better clarity and appreciation for what Paul was expressing by this esteemed identity applied toward the church. So walk with me as we follow circumcision through the Scriptures. Not every reference, but been there. That was this week. High points and points of connection for you. Not engaging every possible text, but establishing a fair representation of its development. So first we have Genesis chapter 12. This is actually pre-circumcision, which is important to Paul's argument in Romans and other places. But nevertheless, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and at this time he establishes the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. Elements which you're familiar with, the promise of a people, a land, and a blessing. So he's called him out, Abraham, I've set you apart, or Abram at the time, if we want to be more precise. And he's giving him a promise, precious promise. Then we advance to Genesis 15. God cuts his covenant with Abraham. That which was promised is now fixed. God established his covenant with Abraham. Is Abraham circumcised yet? No. Paul makes that argument very, very clear in other books. So we're not going to make that argument here, but we're going to draw it to our attention. Then we advance to Genesis 17. There's a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant and the institution of its sign now. The sign of the covenant to Abraham was circumcision. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, one who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed. Genesis 7, 9 through 12. Then we advance to Genesis 21. We will pick up the pace, but we're establishing a foundation here. Genesis 21, Isaac was born and subsequently circumcised on the eighth day. And we get on to Exodus chapter 12. We're having the context of the Passover. And in that context, it's established that even the sojourner, a stranger who dwelt among God's people, among the Israelites, was to be circumcised if they were to celebrate the Passover. Leviticus chapter 12. Here, eighth-day circumcision of male sons was codified in the law. Leviticus 12.3, now on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So we saw that established in Genesis 17. Now it's codified in the law of Moses. Then we come to Leviticus 26. We have a very important development here. So we've already established the connection to Abraham, its progress, its identification with the, the covenant and the nation and even strangers among them. And now we have very important language that's starting to be more overt here. Very important development. As circumcision of the heart is introduced. And by introduced, I mean the language is now overtly introduced. It's treated as a matter that was implicitly understood as its absence was associated with Israel's rebelliousness and the associated consequences of such. And so we read in Leviticus 26, 40 to 42, 
and this is a, a restoration context, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also how they walked in hostility against me, I also was walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, what's the problem? It's when their hearts are not circumcised, right? That's, that's a reflection of disobedience, rebellion. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Then we advance to Deuteronomy chapter 10, following the, the profane rebellion that came at the time that Moses first received the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. There was a reissuing of them as Moses smashed the first ones when he discovered Israel's wicked offenses. Now at this time of their being reissued, there was the accompanying call for Israel to circumcise their hearts. Now it's not in the, the negative, it's in the, the direct command, expectation. This is what God's faithful, believing community does. This is what his people do. They circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to ver verses 12 to 16. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Again, that's a really important moment as it drives home that it was always the heart that concerned the Lord. And circumcision of heart was not a matter introduced by way of the New Testament as though the church had become a, a superior counterpart to Israel. They circumcised the flesh, we circumcised the heart. Circumcision of the heart was always the expectation, and it was not an elective one at that. It was the mark of true faith as much as physical circumcision was the mark of being identified with the Abrahamic covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 30. When speaking to Israel's future restoration, you can pick up on a very clear theme here. Disobedience, uncircumcision, restoration, circumcision of heart. Deuteronomy 30, when speaking to Israel's future restoration, Moses declares that Yahweh will circumcise Israel's heart and the heart of their seed. Chapter 30, verse 6, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. By what means will you obey the greatest commandment with a circumcised heart? Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, advancing much further now, we do come to Jeremiah 4, where once more in a context of proposed restoration comes the call to circumcise the heart. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And now, coming to the New Testament, we pick up with Acts chapter 7 and Stephen, where he's giving testimony, and in such, he's condemning those whose circumcision was limited to their physical person and not their heart. He's speaking to the top-level Jews here, as it were, the Jew of Jews here, the, those who were condemning him for allegedly compromising the faith not understanding redemption in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 51. You men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. 
How did he describe those who rejected the clear salvific testimony of redemption in Christ? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Acts chapter 8. We have a time of transition as the gospel advances to Samaria. And we read in verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, the Samaritans, obviously, we know bad blood with the Jews, but we also know they would have embraced the law and they would have embraced circumcision and were themselves, as it were, part, partial Jews. They were mixed. So this was not a complete surprise. They too would receive the Holy Spirit, but it was a definitive moment. Well, what does that matter? You're talking about circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Let's continue on to see how this matter progresses with Acts chapter 10, which is a more definitive moment as it pertains to these matters um, a time of major transition as the gospel now advanced to uncircumcised Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these things, this is Cornelius he's speaking to in his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and magnifying God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone refuse water for these be, to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for a few days. What was the nature and response of the circumcised believers? They were astounded. These uncircumcised persons were receiving the evidence of salvation in Christ, namely the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and they were speaking in tongues. Evidence that they had been circumcised of heart, even while physically remaining uncircumcised. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Word soon got out, and Peter found himself in a place of having to defend what had happened. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. But we skip forward here. When Peter gave testimony to verse 18 of the personal dispatching and work of the Spirit that unfolded before him, they accepted it and rejoiced in the outcome that Gentiles were also coming to salvation in Christ. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has granted circumcision of heart to the uncircumcised. However, the matter was not fully resolved, and so we come to Acts 15, where we have the account of the Jerusalem Council, Council, which convened to address the attempted imposition of circumcision and the law on believing Gentiles, which is at the heart of what's being spoken to in our passage, and many others. And I trust that most of you, and I know everybody, but I think most of you are familiar, strongly familiar with this chapter, so I'm going to only hit some highlights of the, a few portions, the beginning and the end. If you're not as familiar with it, it's an easy read. It's very, very, very important to understand the nature of the development of the New Testament church. But well, let's just pick up with Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, how the matter began. So we have some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa! huge flag, right? You are physically circumcised or you're not redeemed in Christ. And when Paul and Barnabas had not a little dissension and debate, i.e. they were fighting mad, 
the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Reasonably so. I, 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 don't, I don't know what it would take to get some of us fighting mad. That would be grounds, right? Let's skip on now to the, how the matter concludes, verses 23 to 29. The, the decision had been rendered, and now this is the letter that was dispatched out. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brothers who are elders to the brothers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. We're writing to the uncircumcised. Since we have heard that some of us, to whom we gave no instruction, have gone out and disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, and they themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality, from which, if you keep yourselves, you will do well. Farewell. Acts 15, 23 to 29. Did you see what was not there? No circumcision. No submission to the Mosaic law was required. The matter was resolved. Now, the New Testament does speak to circumcision several times. Notably, in Romans and Galatians, Paul gives very clear arguments regarding the how to understand circumcision, uncircumcision, those who obey, those who don't obey, and the weight and consequence of choosing circumcision. But I would argue nothing inherently new is introduced regarding its role or the expectation that it is the heart that must be circumcised. That's not a New Testament introduction, as it were. It's not something that, that was, oh, wow, didn't see that. The church is the circumcised heart. It was the nature of God's redeemed people to be of circumcised heart. This is far, that goes back as far as we saw in Leviticus. What is uniquely revealed in the New Testament is the church, a body consisting of Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, a body not governed by the law of Moses, but the law of Christ. Again, it is the law of Christ that guides and governs the church, this body of believers who have become the first fruit beneficiaries of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, which was cut with Christ's death. We are indwelled by the Spirit, and we have hearts that have been circumcised. And as such, we who are in Christ are the circumcision. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, we pick up again as Paul expresses in Colossians 2, circumcision of the heart is expressed by the outward act of baptism. It is not equated with baptism. It is a picture of our being buried and raised up with Christ that we're testifying that, yes, we have been circumcised of heart. Yes, that has been accomplished because of the finished work of Christ and our submission and faith there too. He writes again, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2, 9 to 12. Therefore, once more, in view of this, we who are in Christ are the circumcision. And this is why those who would impose a physical circumcision as an expression of compliance with the Mosaic law are not only engaging in a superfluous act, 
But as Paul made plain in Galatians, they are condemning themselves as such an act undermines the integrity of the work of Christ and our faith therein. Galatians 5, 2 through 4, writes, or Paul writes, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's frightening language. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are being justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And such is why Paul directs us to rejoice in the Lord who has transformed our hearts, who has circumcised our hearts with the circumcision made without hands. And such is why we hear and heed those sharp rebukes of beware, beware, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Rather, our confidence is in Christ and our great ambition is not to scrupulously follow the law, but to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have been pleased to set your affection upon the Father's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They weren't the most exemplary of men in, in the sense that they certainly had their struggles and uh, in terms of submitting to you and walking in obedience in all manners and full confidence, and yet you set your affection on them. And you unilaterally establishing a covenant with Abraham, established the, the foundations of what would um, continue to mature and to continue to progress. That promise would work itself out. That promise would which continues to find expression and will have its fuller expression in days to come, was established with the sign of circumcision. Very, very clear and very valuable to your people throughout redemptive history and, and something you expected. And so then we have that most beautiful picture that there's something more here. There's something more. Something that was very clear right from the outset. That it's not just a physical circumcision. It's not just being about a, a natural descendant of Abraham. It's not even becoming a, uh, a proselyte follower and, and, and grafted into the uh, a lineage that's not one's own naturally, but rather it's a circumcision of heart that you expect. It's a circumcision of heart that you carry out and, and work in those who are yours. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you that uh, we don't have to strive and struggle and fight to, to try to, to keep undue burdens, but that we can walk in joyful obedience, that we can rejoice in submitting ourselves to the Redeemer and, and walking in that which you have made clear. Commands to rejoice, commands to beware, rejoicing as a people who have indeed been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And so we thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to not only preserve the clarity and integrity of the scriptures, but again, to find our joy and satisfaction in them. And to be driven, not to, to figure out what we must do to please you by way of statutes and ordinances, but striving to know you. And to know you is to know the power of your death and resurrection. And so I thank you, Lord, that Paul lays this out so emphatically, so clearly. And I pray, Lord, that you would so direct us as well. 
you'd give us the enablement to do that which you've commanded us to. You would help us to fulfill that which was charged for us back in chapter 2. Now we see clearly, or at least more clearly, this is how we'll do it. It was really hard. It was weighty. How do we do it? Well, it's by longing and striving and spending ourselves to know you. To know you in the power of your resurrection. And I pray that that would be our great ambition. And we thank you for, again, this opportunity. Pray that you would help us to be wise and faithful as we submit ourselves to these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.